Live from Mexico City, this is The Morning Break with Graham Stanley, and you are listening live. Hello and welcome to The Morning Break. I was supposed to have a guest lined up for today, but it fell through. So I'm taking Tom Rogers' advice, and I'll be talking about my EdTech life. I'll be looking at a top at my top five tech experiences and how they've shaped my experience as a teacher. So I'll be speaking about these memorable learning points or experiences I've had related to technology and education. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org or join in the conversation by downloading the Podbean app and following Teachers Talk Radio. Hashtag TT Radio. Technology, love it or hate it, these days you can't ignore it. Prior to becoming a teacher, um, I've been wondering when preparing for this show, what were the key moments for me as far as technology is concerned? And I think definitely one of the first things that I remember is the arrival of a colour TV at home which was a very big deal. And one of the things I remember um, first seeing when that colour TV arrived was the Harlem Globetrotters playing basketball and just the vivid colours of their um, what they were wearing, etc. It was just amazing. And so that was the first real sort of, if I'm trying to pinpoint when technology really made an impact on my life i think that was definitely one of them the other thing that definitely comes to mind is the calculator the the first time i started i actually got a calculator that was necessary for me uh for school and that was fascinating actually having in my hand a piece of technology that would help me uh with schoolwork that's probably the first my first experience of educational technology, definitely, but as a student. And I think all of the talk that uh, has been going on about some of the things that are available to teachers, sorry, to students today, such as ChatGPT, um, all of the AI tools that are going to really transform everybody's life. Well, if I think back uh, to the calculator and the debate about the calculator and how uh, parents and teachers were very concerned that it would lead to a a um, lead to problems with uh, students not being able to uh, use maths in the way that they should do, and how uh, that is just sort of looking back, I think it seems a bit ridiculous, really, uh, that that was felt to be. Uh, the case at the time. Next on the on my list of of moments for when technology sort of certainly had an impact on my life prior to being a teacher, and without really thinking about education, is definitely my experience of the first computer games, and I remember seeing the first computer games console in the house of an uncle of mine, Uncle Jimmy, 
and he had a console that just played Pong. So that very simple black and white screen where you have uh, the game of electronic tennis going on with two sort of squares, one either side of the screen, and that square ball being battered from one to the other. And that was so exciting <laughs> to see, which sounds ridiculous now, but the idea of being able to play a computer game like that in uh, the house was fascinating. So that was definitely a kind of eye-opening moment for me as far as technology is concerned. We never had one uh, at home, but I used to look forward to going to my uncle Jimmy's house uh, and he'd get out the Pong machine and plug it into his TV and we'd play. And that was uh, that was amazing. So there's that. Then I guess um, video game arcades were a very important part of my life as a young teenager. And going to the coast where I grew up in the northeast of England and playing Space Invaders and other others of these games, that was an important moment for me where you'd get together with friends and cluster around some of these stand-up arcade games and play them. And then apart from the classic Pac-Man, which I never really liked because I was never good at it. I was always uh, more into the space games uh, like Gallagher and Space Invaders. So apart from, apart from that, I think one of the exciting things was on a regular basis just going and watching other people play rather than... So it wasn't even about playing the games myself, which is quite interesting because of the the things that um, are happening at the moment with a lot of uh, a lot of young people in particular watching people play video games on YouTube and channels uh, on Twitch, etc., and there being this sort of fascination with um, being a sort of spectator video games as a spectator sport. Well, it, it it's not really new actually. I, I always felt that. Whenever I saw people commenting upon the idea of um, of teenagers today actually watching um, gamers play and it being uh, a little strange to a lot of people. Well, I remember going and watching players play down at the arcades, uh, but they were playing live, of course, not on TV. So I didn't find it that strange. And I remember one game in particular caught the attention of me and friends, which was a game called Dig Dug, which was a game where you actually had to dig down um, and collect things that were hidden under the earth, such as gems, etc., and building tunnels and avoiding the monsters that were coming after you. That was fascinating, and we used to go and play that a lot. And I think that was that was a game that we used to play a lot because it wasn't too difficult to play. And you could actually play for quite a long time with just uh, the coin, the one coin that you put in. But a lot of the other games, you would end up playing for a few minutes and then you'd be killed and it seemed like you were uh, wasting your money because it didn't last long. So I think that was one of the reasons why we played Dig Dug. 
Next on the list, I think, has to be IBM PCs. And so when I first started working after university, um, I worked in a company in architectural practice that had on the desk IBM PCs. And these were the first or one of the first personal computers that stood on everybody's desk. They were monochrome screens that were black with very piercing green light or orange light occasionally. And I definitely think the reason why I'm wearing glasses today was because I had um, a few years actually working every single day with those IBM PCs. And uh, everyone who worked with them ended up getting glasses after about six months. And that is definitely the time uh, when I started having problems with my eyesight. So I look back and I think, mm, yeah, I think that was probably the reason for it. So working with IBM PCs was definitely uh, a pivotal moment for me. That's when I first start, started getting my taste for computers and what they could do. And a lot of it was keep record keeping that I was involved with at the time, uh, straight after university. So um, because it was an architectural practice, sort of keeping uh, a database, tracking um, the architectural drawings, etc. cetera. Uh, so record management. And then that led me to getting my first home PC, which was an Amstrad. And I remember actually very concerned about the amount of money that that was costing me to actually buy one of those but being very excited about getting one and again it was black and white screen I think and it was a very basic computer compared to the computers that we use nowadays but it was very exciting to actually have a personal computer at home and I made full use of that for all sorts of things, including computer games. And then I think just before I left the UK to go to Spain to work as a an English teacher, I remember at work someone telling me about the internet and bulletin boards, etc., and that was my first sort of taste of hearing about what that could do. And this person I worked with called Ian, I remember him saying, you, you would really love this. You would love this. I, would, I wish I could show you it. I'm not sure how he had access to it, but he definitely had access to it through a friend. Otherwise, he would have um, readily and happily shown me it as well. I didn't really get to see it, but I heard about it back then when uh, it first started appearing. And those, I think, were the times when I started, that I had access to, or that when technology really had an impact on my life prior to become a t becoming a teacher. And during the rest of the show, I'll talk about technology and education. So I'll be talking about some of the key moments that um, I've had when it comes to education, teaching and technology 
and some of the learning points for me as a teacher and in the classroom. And so be sure to stay tuned if you think that's of interest and feel free if you're out there and listening live and would like to talk to me about your relationship with education and technology, then I'd love to hear from you and call in. But right now, though, let's take a quick break and listen to the Teachers Talk news. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, a leading publisher of books, directories, educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward-thinking schools in the UK and beyond. Have you checked out their latest releases? Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. At the National Higher Education Conference, Unison Assistant General Secretary John Richards opened proceedings with a damning critique of the government's approach towards university education, according to Unison's own website. Mr Richards focused on out-of-touch ministers who failed to understand the current funding crisis and pointed out that the funding models across the UK seem to be broken. He cited the issue of limited government funding as causing a de facto cap on student numbers and accused the government of trashing the UK's reputation for higher education in Europe, leading to big drops in the numbers of overseas students a story covered by Teachers Talk Radio News last week. Mr Richards went on to assert that those in government do not understand the cost of living crisis because they've never had to face it. Strike action by those working in the HE sector has been part of a wave of action taken by unions across a range of public sectors in recent weeks. The last week saw the release of details of government plans to revamp children's social care in England. BBC News reported on the plan for more early support for families and the extra £200 million funding for the next two years. Last year, a review warned that tens of thousands more children could end up in care without additional funding and reform. The plan has faced criticism that many of the changes are being rolled out as localised pilots rather than a national programme. The government plans to put families at the heart of the reform and intends to provide better support for all vulnerable children in order to reduce the need for crisis intervention. There will be pilots in 12 local authorities which will deliver more early support for families struggling with addiction, domestic abuse and poor mental health. There will also be more family type placement for children in care with relatives, friends or foster families. Other changes include plans to recruit more foster carers, a simpler process and more support for relatives or friends who take on children, a rise in the leaving care allowance and support for councils to recruit and retain more social workers. Economic Constitutional and Social Policy Forum Politeer has published an article focusing on its views of the proposed changes to the school's history curriculum. The publication History, Whose History? The Battle for the School Curriculum features three historians' views on the proposals. The government's plan for reform came in response to recommendations from the Commission on Race and Ethnic Disparities, 
The plan for a new model history curriculum for pupils to see themselves as integral parts of what makes up the UK today was proposed. The essays included in the publication focusing on the responses of a variety of academics who all appear to conclude that there is no need for the proposed changes because diversity is already built in the current programme. Further details of the publication and forum for debate can be found on the Policy website. Finally, a school principal in a rural part of Northern Ireland has expressed concerns over safety after it emerged that recruitment of lollipop men and women is being frozen. It comes as part of a drive to save money. The current power sharing deadlock in Stormont meant no budget could be agreed and significant cuts needed to be made. The principal of a rural primary school, Donna Winters, told the BBC that until recently there had been consistent crossing patrol staff that have been vital in making sure pupils can cross roads safely, but that they have not had staff since December. The school has had to resort to employing a patrol staff member directly and, when they are absent, teaching and support staff have to fill in. Ms Winters went on to point out that safety was not an area where cuts should be made. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, it's Safer Internet Week, with the official day being on the 7th of February. This year, the UK Safer Internet Centre focuses on Want to Talk About It, making space for conversation online. They've got loads of educational resources on the website saferinternet.org.uk, banded into 3 to 7, 7 to 11, 11 to 14 and 14 to 18 years of age. They are even translated into Welsh and have adapted resources for SEND and ALD. So, they have pretty much covered all bases. You need to take a look. But why do we need to get our young people talking about this? Well, let me try and give you an idea in one breath. <gasps> With an estimated 5.16 billion people using the internet at 64.4% of the world's population, it's estimated that around 500,000 predators pose a threat to young people daily, with the main target being 12 to 15-year-old children. With a quick search of statistics from the internet, I found supposedly 1 in 25 children will be manipulated in some way this year, and 80% of predatory behaviour will be through social media. This couple with only 15% of parents actually knowing what their children are doing online makes this an issue which definitely needs to be talked about with our young people. <sighs> To get some perspective on this, every 60 seconds, TikTok users watch over 167 million videos. Data never sleeps. We need to know how to stay safe because the sheer volume of data means it cannot effectively be policed. Please send your thoughts amongst the 575,000 other posts every 60 seconds on Twitter at TT Radio Official. I'm Steve Woods and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. So, back to my experience of educational technology. Well, um, I think the next real moment or the first real moment of being a teacher and coming across education technology and, and understanding what it would mean was when I was in my first year as a teacher and I worked in a small language academy in a place called Terrassa, which is very near Barcelona in Catalonia, in north, uh, northern Spain. And I remember in the staff room of this academy, one of the teachers had brought in an Apple Mac computer and it was just sitting in the corner. 
we weren't allowed to use it. It was his personal computer. He decided to bring it into uh, to the school to to use. And I'm not quite sure whether he left it there or whether he took it home uh, in the evening. But it was definitely there during the day for some time. And I remember he was trying to experiment with what that computer could do. So one of the things he used to do was print off was create worksheets. And I remember one day in particular where I was teaching adults English in the evening and he prepared a worksheet based on an incident that had just happened with the um, the Prime Minister-to-be, Jose um, Maria Asma, where someone had put a bomb under his car and uh, tried uh, to kill him and there was a news article I think I'm not sure which site would have been CNN etc one of those news sites and this teacher had created a gap fill um, about the activity so he had it available he printed it off I photocopied it I took it up to class and I was able to use it with my students um, and surprise them because they had no idea that this incident had happened because they'd been at work during the day and then they arrived to take their English class and the first time they heard about this was actually through my worksheet and that felt to me that it was a very powerful thing that we were able to do with that take current affairs and bring text into the classroom uh, to interest the students. We ended up having a very stimulating conversation around all of this, um, touching on everything from politics to terrorism, etc. And I felt the students, when they were talking to me or trying to talk to me, because I think they were quite low level, were really... Um, engaged and trying their best to communicate their ideas and this for me was what it was all about so that was my big aha moment as far as using the internet in the classroom was like you can use it to get to get students engaged in material that is so up-to-date that um, wasn't possible beforehand I think Nowadays, it's taken for granted that we can just do that. And with access to uh, news and the internet on our phones, we're unlikely to be able to engage our students just with that type of information. Of course, we have to work a lot harder. But back then, it was really something quite special. So I think that was an important thing that really... Uh, made me understand and want to explore more the use of the internet uh, in the classroom. And that led me uh, to develop in all sorts of different ways as a teacher. I remember going to a summer school where I was, I had access to the internet on a computer and I was one of the few teachers who was interested in in using it and because of that the director of the summer school actually allowed me 
to use it a lot more than the others, other teachers who weren't particularly that interested in it. And I made use of it for worksheets, etc. And But then at that point, I'd started becoming fascinated with the idea of websites and the fact that you can actually build your own websites. Uh, I taught myself a little bit of HTML to be able to to be able to do that. And I offered the owner of the summer school the chance of me building them a little website. So I took that on as a project during the actual summer school in uh, and built a little website for him and for his school, which was my first sort of um, experience of trying to write websites, to program websites, etc. That was fascinating as well. And I think related to the internet in general, the other thing I would say was coming back from that experience of having used the internet during the summer and to be able to uh, to have some experience of HTML, etc. That gave me the opportunity uh, at work to have access to the um, the internet in my school, and again, I was the the internet then was very limited. We we only had access as teachers if you didn't have your own computer, which was unlikely uh, as a teacher back then. Then you would only really have access to it through your school, um, and there would only be like one computer for use with the school and I remember in Barcelona again having access to the school's computer and being given the responsibility to to find resources on the internet that would be of use for students uh, and for other teachers to use and creating worksheets that led me to actually get a part-time position in what was the internet classroom. So in International House in Barcelona, back in the day of the uh, first sort of stirring of the internet, the the academy, internet, International House, actually set up an internet classroom. And that was um, made available for students to come and use whenever they wanted, whenever there weren't classes, etc., to be able to use as an internet cafe and we also, the people who worked in that internet classroom, actually created worksheets for teachers to use with their students. And I was one of those people who was fortunate enough to be able to do that. And so we had the opportunity, I had the opportunity when teachers came and brought their students in for 20 minutes, half an hour, for example, to the internet classroom, we had ready-made worksheets with activities um, available. And I was uh, co-teaching, if you like, with the teacher who brought the, the students in who didn't know much about the internet and would take over the, the class really to be able to, um, to give them that um, experience. And that was really the, my first experience of working with students and, and other teachers in an in a computer room, really, um, with live internet access and activities. That, again, was fascinating and really did lead me to um, 
to understand the value and the potential of that kind of activity and educational technology. Uh, I also think it's quite interesting, the two people I worked with who really, they it was their idea to set up the internet classroom, um, Gavin Dudney and Didi Tyler, Tila, I think it is, it was. Um, they both ended up writing books for teachers uh, with two different publishers during that period. So the first books, as far as, I, I think it was not the first, first actual book about the internet and English language teaching, but certainly the two books that came after that, and one of the most popular ones, um, were, were written by the two teachers I was working with in that Barcelona classroom, which is quite interesting, I think. So that was a real experience, I think, a real aha moment for me um, as far as education technology is concerned. And by this time, I was I was hooked on being um, on being able to use the internet with the, with the students and educational technology in general. I thought it was fascinating, and was something that at the time was really affecting, starting to affect everybody's lives. And of course, we had no idea just how much technology would would have an effect on on all aspects of life back then. But certainly it was something that was perceived that it would definitely become more important. My next key moment, as far as educational technology is concerned, uh, is the blog, the weblog. And blogging, I think, entered, yeah, entered my world at uh, the year 2003, in July 2003. So this year will be, it'll be 20 years since I've used blogs as a teacher and with students. And this was something that was quite interesting because the back then in 2003, the British Council, who I worked for then in Barcelona again, they had one of the first learning management systems. They just launched it. It was a global learning management system. It was available for all teachers and all students in theory and it had lots of potential as far as chatting is concerned as far as being able to publish and this seemed to be fascinating and i was teaching um, teenagers and pre-teenagers during a summer course at the time in barcelona and i'd applied for use of this learning management system which was called global village back then and it was um way before its time it was the first time i'd ever heard of anything like it and um, being used for students and that well was something that i applied to be able to use and there were so many permission forms that were um necessary to be able to get access to it that every single child I had to collect permission forms for from their parents, of course, quite rightly, I think. Uh, although these were early days, and um, I think we, we hadn't really understood much about this type of safeguarding that is so uh, apparent to us now, I think. But back then, I definitely had to collect permission forms from the students, uh, from their parents, and um then i 
then I needed to submit them to my director of studies and my director of studies needed to submit them to somebody else and then they had to review them and give me access. In the end, it just became so bureaucratic that I gave up on it. So it was like it was such a process of trying to get access, trying uh, of trying filling in papers and trying to and waiting to be able to get access to my for my students to uh, to this learning management system that it became impossible. And so unfortunately, the potential of Global Village, and I can see my former colleague Chris Fry, who's based in Barcelona, he remembers this. The potential was so um, interesting, but the reality of actually trying to get it, get it to work was was another matter. Unfortunately, it wasn't um, it wasn't used as much as it could have been because of all of the uh, bureaucracy involved and the kind of worry I think about how it could be misused um, meant it wasn't used as much as teachers or learners would have uh, liked to to do it. Unfortunately. All that is to say that what happened was I had booked the computer room at the place where I was working uh, to use with students during the during the course. I had this idea, and I'd actually told the students that we were going to be using computers as an integral part of of the course. But then I didn't have access to uh, to what the learning management system. So I decided to follow up on something that a friend of mine had told me about, which was a blog. So he'd actually uh, introduced me to this idea of a blog through Blogger, one of the first popular blogging platforms. And I set one up. I set one up and ended up using that with students. But before uh, or while I was using a blog with students and getting them to to write and to publish, um, and again having permission from their parents to do this, but without having to go through the other layers of bureaucracy to get to get access to it because I could just do it myself, um, was interesting. So I started using this and it was quite successful. Um, or at least I thought so at the time. Looking back at it now, I'm not sure how successful it was or how useful or interesting it was to the students. They were certainly interested in it because it was new. And um, I'm sure that it did help them with their writing. But after the course had ended, I started experimenting in the rest of that summer that I wasn't working with blogging and trying to find out who else was blogging as far, um, as, far as English language teaching was concerned. That's when I came up with, I came across um, Teresa Almeida Deca, and she was, uh, she had a weblog with her students, and her students were very young, so she was doing all of the, the actual publishing. They weren't actually, they didn't really have access to the, to the weblog themselves. And so she was publishing their writing on it, but definitely it was she was using it as a way of sharing content online, so that they would be engaged enough to uh, to write. So the idea of having an audience beyond the teacher to write is what the the blog gives uh, students. I think this is the real 
benefit of blogging. The idea of being able to share your work, your writing, your thoughts with people, which included at that time with her students, her parents, their parents, um, was really interesting. And I, I'm looking now at a post that I wrote back in on July the 30th, 2003, which was my first sort of reasonable length post for teachers on a blog that I set up called blog-efl.blogspot.com. And it's really nice having still that uh, all of those posts as a memory of what happened there, because I certainly wouldn't remember exactly when it was, etc., et if it wasn't for that. And I was posting about uh, Teresa's blog, blog with uh, um, students and this idea of having a class blog. And I did a little review of that and I was fascinated with it. And through Teresa, I got um, to know about other bloggers at the time, other English language teaching bloggers. And it was just really a very small group of people who were doing this. One of them was someone in, in Japan called Aaron Campbell. And Aaron had actually written a paper about blogging. And uh, it was he who started defining what types of blogs you could use with students. So it was like a student blog, which was when each of the students would have a blog, a class blog, which would be one blog for each of uh, for all of the students in a class and a teacher blog and I realized that what I was doing with the blog that I'd set up at that time was uh, a teacher blog and that's what I continued and I continued writing this teacher blog for quite a long time giving it up and going back to it uh, but it still exists and I keep meaning to go back to that as well because I did really enjoy blogging and I felt reflecting on um, teaching and educational technology which is what I used uh, this blog for was something that really helped my development really so it's something I think I might want to try and go back to use again I think it the idea of the blog sort of died off with social media with Facebook in particular it's like people started writing their thoughts, etc., on Facebook, and one of the things that meant it wasn't very um, popular anymore was the fact that uh, that um, people got out of the habit of leaving Facebook and going to another place to actually comment upon them. So when the comments dried up in the comment on the posts in blogs, then people lost interest really I think in blogging although I do think that there are still people who uh, are, do it very effectively okay so that was the the one of the first um, experiences I had with educational technology that really made an impact and I developed blogs with students after that and really felt this idea of instant publishing and sharing student work to a very to a larger audience really did um, have an effect on their learning. This idea of being able to 
to share with a, a wider world, I think uh, it was very important, sort of breaking down the walls of the classroom and being able to um, to share, I think. Uh, one of the things I think was quite interesting is that with writing, it was de very difficult to get students to actually revise their work before um, before submitting it. But if they felt that their work was going to be seen by more people beyond the teacher, then it was a lot easier. So you could convince students to actually uh, revise it. You could do the corrections and get them to revise the work so that they would be they would feel a lot happier knowing that there weren't uh, there weren't any errors when when it was being published. That was blogging. I think the next thing that really had an impact on me grew out of blogging was I remember when it first appeared this idea of audio blogging and I won't talk much about this because I talked a little bit about this in the show that I had uh, a few weeks ago um, with Japan's first blogger um, Scott Lockman and but definitely podcasting was this idea of being able to blog um, using audio files. So it was called audio blogging as well as podcasting back then and being able to share your thoughts. But actually with, with speaking and listening it became a very important thing. And of course, with language teaching and learning, the idea of being able to, um, to share audio was a very revolutionary idea. And definitely that became an important thing for me. So as I went on and was teaching a university students at the time who were studying tourism, I came up with this idea of, um, of a course which was called Theme Tourism. And for that course, we looked at different themes within tourism. So how themes could be uh, used to actually teach and this was a kind of, it was a an English course, but it was definitely, it was an ESP course, so English for Special Purposes, if you like. So the idea was that I could, uh, I, want, I was to teach English to these students at the university who were studying tourism, but also have an element of related to uh, tourism in the English classes and what I came up with was a course which looked at different case studies if you like of tourism in different countries and how those themes were used to attract uh, tourists to the country and um, that included for example the idea of Robin Hood so how Robin Hood is used in the UK to attract students to the uh, or rather attract tourists to the UK, the whole legend of Robin Hood and how there are curiously enough several places where he was supposed to have been born, several places where he was his body was supposed to have been buried, etc. All sorts of uh, things and the battle between different counties as far as the legends concerned uh, with Sherwood Forest which used to be a lot larger than, than it was, uh, than it is now, etc. What I did with students and podcasting was I 
ask them to prepare a short five minutes or so report um, on a theme of their choosing and I give them the opportunity of submitting the script and for me to correct it and to give them ideas of how to make it better before they did this but then they would record it and we would podcast that um, that text and so the finished product if you like for their project was a five minute uh, audio text of them that they would prepare based on a report that was around a theme and we had this as a blog that was quite an interesting um, thing to do and I did that over several years so that was podcasting and how that became an important part of um, of how I used education technology with students and again it was I think a very um, interesting thing for me to be able to see how you could help students develop their oral skills to become much better at speaking through asking them to uh, to do this and they would have to really focus upon producing something that was be going to be heard by potentially uh, an audience that could include anyone in the world although the reality was that there weren't that many people listening in but it was the idea that they needed to do that and make it uh, to be decent enough and that they would be proud about what they say and we could also I could also listen to their finished work and give them tips on pronunciation etc and then they would re-record it uh, before it was published so the idea of going back and getting it right of getting it better was an important thing when it comes to podcasting so that's podcasting um moving on um we've got a couple more uh of these aha moments or these learning points for me as far as educational technology and my use of uh interaction with it is concerned the next one was definitely games and virtual worlds so again last week's show was all about gamification and i have spoken in the past i've done a special on game-based learning as well so i won't talk much about this but i had been playing games as i mentioned right at the introduction um from an early age and i'd always played computer games i think when i became a teacher i'd not had access to a computer when i left the uk and moved to spain uh, so for a while i was not a games player but then i started um playing again once i had a a um a pc again and i started becoming becoming interested in the idea of perhaps playing games with students or using computer games with students and the reason for that was in particular back then the pre-teens uh, i think in particular was a group that were fascinating with fascinated with um computer games in particular the kind of mini games the flash games that were appearing at the time that were free to play and that was something i thought was fascinating the idea of taking a game and a lot of these games were if you like 
um, they required information to be able to solve puzzles. So the idea of this, a lot of these point and click games or in, indeed the escape the room game genre as it started appearing back then um, were the ideal games to play with the students because they were quite difficult puzzles and in order to solve the puzzles and move on in the game you needed to either spend quite a lot of time experimenting looking for hidden objects etc clicking on the screen or trying to figure out puzzles that were presented to you or what a lot of um, players did back then once they got stuck was they used to look on the internet for what was called a walkthrough and now i think most walkthroughs are video walkthroughs um, so you can actually watch a player and how they move through a game but back then they were all written and they're all written in english and so that discovery i think and it was me and a colleague of mine back at the uh at the place where i was working kyle moore was the colleague that we were both becoming uh separately but we ended up sharing a lot of ideas together um about the use of uh, these games and how they could be adapted uh, for students. So we ended up doing a lot of worksheets, sharing these, uh, sharing ideas and of how to use the games. And using the walkthroughs became um, fascinating because with the walkthrough you had a script where you could actually um, tell the students in English the solution to the games that they were playing. So we used to take the students into the computer room to play a particular game after uh, 30 seconds to a minute or so of them playing you would say okay here's how you get past the or here's how you get out of the first room and I remember one game in particular doing this and all we did was play the first screen of about I don't know 20 screens of this game and it was all with them all being so attentive, listening to me, and then acting on my instructions to be able to complete the first screen of this game. And it was a fascinating listening activity for me. I realized that you got instant feedback because the students who could not uh, get out of the room or could not move, it's because they didn't, didn't understand what you said. So you could go and give them some extra tuition at the screen. But then I think the aha moment for me was really at the end of that class when the students when we finished and we'd only played one screen of the game and the students said can you know how do i play this afterwards so i gave them a link to the game and uh, but they also said but you know what if we get stuck and so what i did was i actually photocopied the rest of the instructions from the walkthrough, the written instructions in English of how they could finish the whole of the game. Uh, not for all of the class, but for about half of them who were interested in it and gave them 40 copies of this. So they had like, I don't know, 15 pages of English, um, where, which was all about, which was the walkthrough of the game of how they could actually finish the game um, on their own. And they took that away. And I remember them coming back coming back into the next class and I asked them about about this. 
did you play the games? Yeah, yeah, we played it. We loved it. If you've got any more games like that, if you've got any more sort of suggestions, then please let let us know. And I was like, well, how did you manage to finish? He said, oh, we used your instructions. And that was like the big aha moment. It was like, okay, I couldn't get these students to read English for homework, um, you know, more than a, a, a page, and it would, wouldn't be something they would do. But as it was a game... They would ha- they would happily go away and take fifteen pages of English and work through it and actually uh, read it to be able to allow them to complete the game. That was a massive aha moment for me, and that led to uh, definitely uh, me and my colleague Kyle understanding that this idea of using games for students was was a massive uh, thing. That led to us writing a book together. Um, and that was over 10 years ago. So that was the other big aha moment. I realize I have, um, I am running out of time now. And um, so I'm going to finish off by, I'm going to skip the virtual worlds aspects because the that was the other um, big moment for me when um, I started using Second Life, which is one of the first really interesting virtual worlds to come available for teaching and learning. And again, I'll leave that for another day. And I'm going to jump just for the remaining time, which is very uh, little, to talk a little bit about video conferencing. So when I left Barcelona and went to Uruguay to work, I started working on a big video conferencing project with primary students. And I realized at that point, just the power of video conferencing was amazing. That ended up taking up quite a few years of my life. That was about 10 years ago now. And the idea of being able to connect students who are not with teachers or with other students who are not physically present in the room and how you can actually teach online effectively became something that uh, I became fascinated with. And it was obviously something that became a lot more important during the pandemic for all of us, but um, quite um, luckily, if you like, I had a lot of experience of being able to observe teachers teaching from different locations and seeing how uh, they could do it more effectively and being able to give advice for teachers uh, through those observations, etc., on a big project where we taught thousands of students um, in Uruguay from places such as the UK, um, Argentina, the Philippines, Colombia, and Mexico. And that was fascinating. And that was really quite an eye opener for me as far as the potential of video conferencing to be able to connect people together. And I think we've all understood that because of the pandemic and that is something that is so still very interesting for me the idea of being able to putting people together who are not physically present the idea of being able to teach wherever you are if you have access to a a computer and a uh, a webcam etc and one of the things that we were able to show uh, through that project that I worked on was the idea of um, student achievement not being affected um, at all through 
um, them being taught remotely. So there was a study where we uh, the students that were being taught face to face were given the same uh, tests as the students who were taught who were taught remotely, and the results showed that there was no difference in attainment. That was quite an, um, quite a moment for me because back then, about I don't know, about uh, seven years ago, eight years ago, there was this sort of doubt about the effectiveness of remote teaching, about teaching through video conferencing, and whether it would be as good as. Of course, I think there isn't any doubt in my mind and in a lot of other people's minds and certainly the feedback we got from students is that they much enjoyed uh, they they had a better experience if they have a teacher in the classroom they preferred that but as far as attainment's concerned there was no difference that we were able to uh, ascertain through the testing that we did so again that was a big moment for me as far as educational technology is concerned the idea that you can actually make the experience and the effectiveness of of teaching and learning to be similar um, if you if you try hard to do it and that brings me to the end of today's show uh, thank you to Tom for suggesting I do this I never really I was about to cancel the class because uh, the guests fell through but I thought okay this would be an interesting challenge for me to do and uh, many thanks to all of you who've listened in live and especially to those of you who have made it to the end of the show and to those of you who are living uh, who are listening back to the recording as well and remember there are teachers talk radio shows all week so please tune in and listen to the variety of teachers sharing their experiences and uh, talking to guests hopefully the next time you will listen to me it will be with a guest bye for now you've been listening to teachers talk radio tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org we look forward to hearing from you next time on teachers talk radio